read again this morning. We're continuing our series this morning on uh, the law of God, specifically the, the Ten Commandments. And uh, we, we just want to read there together. And hopefully you've already started uh, trying to get these into your mind. I, I, I've asked you, and we're encouraging you to try to memorize at least the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you're able to uh, have the time and the ability to memorize this entire passage, that would be great, uh, but, but we're going to just start at least with the, the Ten Commandments. So here's the way it works. We're going to read this together. I'll read the passages that are parts that are not highlighted, and then you all come in on the highlighted portions, which really are just the specific Ten Commandments, okay? All right. These guys are not too sharp, are they? They're working together like side by side. Divide and conquer. <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> All right. You can just send them there. Thank you. All right. So let's, let's read here. Exodus 20, beginning at verse number 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And verse number 3, let's read it together. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." And verse number seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and, and rested on the seventh day. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, as we continue this series this morning, I, I just want to bring us back to some foundational ideas once more, and I'm repeating these because they are so important. You know, you, you might say, why are, why are we going and all this introductory stuff? Maybe last week's introductory sermon was good. You told us that the law is God's good and, and unchanging standard. What more do we need to know? Let's just hear what God wants us to do. Uh, but Rightly understanding the law of God and how we relate to it makes all the difference in the world. 
In fact, it can make an eternal difference. If you don't rightly understand how you must approach the law and how you must think about the law, it, it can send you to hell. If you don't understand the gospel and what Christ has done for us, and if you do not receive the law at the hands of Christ, as we've talked about, it makes an eternal difference. We said last week that there are two great errors and then there are two corresponding foundational principles that sort of undergird everything we want to do when we talk about the law. So as we move on and we begin to look at the commandments, these I just want these to be resonating in your mind. I want you to, every time you hear a commandment, be thinking about these two foundational principles. The two errors, one is legalism. That is in some way making salvation or God's blessing dependent upon my obedience to the law. It's a relationship based on works. I do good things, I go to heaven. I do good things, I please God, God blesses me. That's a, a works-based relationship. It is legalism. And we need, to, uh, we need to steer away from that. The second one is that big word, uh, that 25-cent word that we talked about last week, antinomianism, which technically speaking means to be against the law. Practically speaking, it, it's an attitude among sometimes either unbelievers or sometimes even professing Christians that says, I, I really have little or no obligation, little concern about keeping the law of God or obedience to God's commands. So those are the two errors. And, and to sort of get away from those two errors, we want to remember two foundational principles. The first is this, that the law is good because it is God's universal, unchanging standard of righteousness. We cannot then, we cannot have an attitude toward God's law that dismisses it or takes it lightly or thinks I really have no obligation to it. We said last week it's an expression of God's righteous character that it's been written on the hearts of all humanity. It's the standard by which we will be judged and it continues to define God's expectation even for us as believers. And so the law is God's unchanging standard. We cannot be careless about it or thoughtless or, or, or act as if we have no obligation to obey it. Foundational truth number two is this. And this is where we're going to focus this morning. The law must be viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ, or we could say it this way, the law must come to us in the hands of Christ. We must receive the law in the hands of Christ. And here's, here's really the main point this morning. We must receive the law in the hands of Christ because the law by itself has a ministry of condemnation. The law by itself, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the grace of God that, that is given to us through Jesus Christ, has a ministry of condemnation. Now we're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning, so I've asked Jeffrey to put those up on, on the screen. Uh, and, and so if you're able to turn to these, that, that would be great, but otherwise they'll be up there. So let's go to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. And uh, I just want you to see that this, this term that I'm using, that the law has a ministry of condemnation, we're going to define that and talk about what that means, but that's biblical terminology. The Apostle Paul in this passage speaks of the law in that way. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4 says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has no...
and it's back on. Brandon, can you make sure this pulpit mic is on in case this goes off again? All right. Um, and so God has made us sufficient here. Paul is talking about his ministry, okay? And, and he's saying that God has, has made him sufficient and that he's a minister of the new covenant, the new covenant, not the old covenant, the new covenant. And then he goes on to define that and, and make a distinction between what the ministry or the work of the old covenant was and the ministry of the new covenant. So he says this, for the letter kills, talking about the Old Testament law, the, the letter kills kills but the spirit gives life now if the ministry of death that's talking about the old covenant and the the law the the ministry of death which was carved in letters of stone you know Moses received the ten commandments written in stone so he says it had a ministry of death that which was carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So he's kind of like what we saw in Hebrews. There's a lesser to greater. The, the old covenant was, was good. There was glory in the old covenant. But, but the glory of the new covenant far outshines the glory of the old covenant. But, but the main thing that we're wanting to notice here is the way that he speaks of the old covenant and the ministry of the old covenant. Do you see it? It says it kills, that it's a ministry of death, and that it's a ministry of condemnation. And so we just need to see that. And what we need to understand here is that part of God's purpose or part of God's design in giving the old covenant law was to bring condemnation by demonstrating the sinfulness of humanity. There, there's a main point there. Part of God's purpose or design in giving the old covenant law was to bring condemnation. It was to demonstrate our sinfulness and show that we are condemned according to God's standard. That was part of God's design. We could just begin really with, with a historical object lesson. And, and I think that's part of why God gave the old covenant people his law. Because we, we see them illustrating this principle all throughout the old covenant. In other words, the law was given in part to show human beings that we cannot be saved. This morning, listen to this. You cannot be saved by living up to God's standard. You cannot do it. And that's part of why God gave you his law written out, spelled out with great clarity so that when you look at it, you, you understand I'm falling short of what God expects of me. And God demonstrated this, this very essential truth that you can't live up to his standard. He, he demonstrated that by, by making his temporal blessings in the old covenant conditioned upon the faithfulness of the old covenant people. Now I use the word there, temporal blessings. That just means blessings, <clears throat> excuse me, that are not eternal. That He's not talking about heaven here. He's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about things in the here and now. There were many temporal blessings that were promised to the old covenant people like, hey, you will inhabit this land of Canaan and I'll drive your enemies out and I'll bless you in this land and I'll make you fruitful and I'll make you prosper. Those are temporal blessings. That's not eternal life. 
There were blessings in the here and now. And God conditioned that their acceptance or their reception of those temporal blessings in this life upon their obedience to his law and their keeping his covenant. There's a couple passages that we could look to here to, to demonstrate this. The first is Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, verse 4. And there it is on the screen. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. If a person does them, he will live by them. I am the Lord. Do you see there? His his blessings upon them as a people were conditioned. If you do these, you will live. And there he's not talking about you're going to earn eternal life. That's not what he's promising them there. He's saying you will live in the land. You will prosper. My blessings, these temporal blessings will be poured out on you when you obey my commands. We see again in Deuteronomy 28, the same thing. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And he goes on to list in that chapter all kinds of blessings. Your land will be fruitful and multiply. You'll have children uh, you, you, won't have, uh, you won't have sickness, all, all of these things. And then in verse 15, the contrast is given. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And, and it's just the opposite. You, you won't be fruitful. You won't multiply. Your land will not produce its crop. There'll be drought and there'll, there'll be all kinds of sickness and your enemies will come over and, and so forth. Do you see how God conditioned their reception of these temporal blessings, these earthly physical blessings based upon their keeping his law and his covenant? So God set up this relationship sort of as a, a type. As, as a picture for us to serve as a historical object lesson. Uh, and, and in a couple ways, it, it did this. One thing, it pointed back to the Garden of Eden. You remember there was a command given to Adam and to Eve. And, and if they obeyed that commandment, they would live. But if they did not obey that commandment, then they would die. And they would what would happen? They'd be driven out of the garden, right? And so God kind of sets that up all over again. Here's God's people and God's place with God's promises, with God's precepts, with God's pro pro uh, presence. And, and it's all here. It's kind of the Garden of Eden all over again. And if you obey these commands, you will stay in my presence. You will stay in this place. You will continue to be my people and you will have my promises. Right. But if you disobey, you will be driven out of my presence. You will no longer be my people. You, you, all of these curses will come upon you because of that. And, and in setting up this relationship with the old covenant people, God was, was demonstrating, he was giving us a historical object lesson that would teach us that we cannot be saved. We cannot earn merit, eternal life. We cannot earn or merit God's blessings. We cannot earn or merit our, our our ability to come into his presence and to be his people based upon us keeping the law. And when you look to the Old Testament, what do you learn? I mean, if you're reading your Old Testament, 
right now. I, I, hopefully some of you are on the same plan I am. I know some of you have said that, right? We've just finished up Deuteronomy. I, I mean, what do you see even as God is giving them his law? Like Moses can't even get down from the mountain and they're already committing idolatry. He doesn't even have the law down to them yet. And they're like, oh, I don't think he's coming back. Let's make, an, let's make a golden calf and worship it. And then Deuteronomy, you've got like all of these lists of people and some sacrifices. And then everything else, all the historical narrative in Deuteronomy seems to be they grumbled, they complained. They didn't have faith. God was going to destroy them. Moses cries out to the Lord, Lord, please have mercy, right? After they had received the covenant. And the rest of the Old Testament is just that. The rest of the Old Testament is God's people failing to live up to their covenant obligations. They could not keep his law for 1,500 years. That's what God has given us, a 1,500-year-long object lesson that says, you can't earn salvation. You cannot earn my blessing. You can't keep my covenant. And so we just need to, to see that. The, God is giving us a historical object lesson. Now, let me, let me make just a, a, a very important point here. Sometimes people think about, and maybe I should have silenced my phone before I make that very important point. Uh, all right. So, uh, where, where was I? This very important point, which is to, to say this. Sometimes we read those passages like the one in Deuteronomy and the one in Leviticus and how God dealt with the people. And some Christians get the notion that in the old covenant, then that salvation was really based on works. If they kept the law, they would be saved. But, but remember I said that in the old covenant, his temporal blessings were conditioned upon their keeping the law. God still saved his people by grace and grace alone. In every age, that's the only way of salvation. No one is ever, ever, in the Old Covenant or New Covenant, no one is ever going to be saved because they kept the law of God. And all we have to do is really look at the bigger picture to, to see that. Let me give you five quick reasons just to demonstrate that. First of all, we need to understand that the law was not the foundation of their relationship with God. It was God's unconditional choosing of and promise to Abraham. How, how did God's people even come about? God took this sinful man, Abraham, and said, I'm making an unconditional promise to you. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the world through you. That was it. That's the foundation. God saying, I'm making an oath. I'm making a promise to you. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, we see this. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his treasured possession because you have kept his law. No, no. He's chosen you to be his possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. What's the foundation of this relationship? My love for you. And I've chosen you. And, and I made a promise to your forefather Abraham. You see, the, the foundation of the relationship bases everything in God and nothing in them as far as the, their uh, being his people. You could see as well, we won't read it, but Galatians 3, that's the point that Paul is making. Galatians 3, verses 17 and 18. But here's the second reason. We need to recognize that God redeemed his people before he gave them the law. 
He, he didn't say, hey, if you want to be my people, here's my law, keep it, and you keep my law, then you'll be my people. No, he redeemed them. He, first of all, he called them and, and made this promise to Abraham, but when they were in Egypt, he gave them, uh, he drew them out of Egypt, he delivered them, he redeemed them, he saved them, and then he gave them his law. And in fact, when you look at it, it's so important to notice this with the Ten Commandments. How did the Ten Commandments start in verse number two that we read earlier? I am the Lord your God. It's already done. I've pledged myself to you. I've made an oath. I've set my love on you. I've chosen you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of, the, of Egypt, out of a house of, of slavery. So redemption precedes the law. Thirdly, the sacrificial system presupposes the need for mercy. It points to the fact that God knew they would not keep his law. What, what is the sacrificial system? You need mercy. You're going to sin. And when you sin, you need a sacrifice. And it's pointing us to Christ and their, their need of mercy through him. Fourthly, God's dealings with his people were always completely dependent upon grace. I mentioned earlier, Moses wasn't even able to get down off the mountain before they were committing idolatry. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see sin after sin after sin. And when Moses cries out to the Lord and asks him for mercy, he does it on the basis of God's merciful character. In Deuteronomy 14, verses 17 through 19, I'll just read that last verse. This is Moses pleading for the people. He says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. You've, been, you've just repeatedly shown your mercy. Please do this again. You see, that's the foundation of this relationship. Fifth, even the greatest Old Testament saints demonstrate the need of grace. If you were to think of the three greatest Old Testament saints, you would think Abraham, Moses, David. Like those are the pinnacle. That's, that's the top. And every last one of them needed the grace of God. Not one of them would be, have a relationship with God based on them being good or them keeping God's righteous standard. Abraham lied. Abraham lacked faith. Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. Again, if you're reading with us uh, through this reading program, you've seen that. Moses disobeyed God. He did not regard God as holy, and he struck the rock when God had commanded him to speak to the rock. And, and because of that, Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. You think he's going to get to go into heaven because of his good works? No. Moses didn't even keep the law of Moses. David committed adultery, committed, a, committed murder. And David said this in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the blessing that we need. We're not going to keep God's law. We need God not to count our sin against us. That's our hope. So the, the answer seems to be to this question of was, was there a different way of salvation in the Old Testament? The answer seems to be a resounding no. The law was never given as a pathway of salvation. But what we need to see and what we need to understand is that by making their enjoyment of his temporal blessings, life in the land, con conditioned upon their obedience, God did provide an object lesson for us. He did provide a, a type for us, a picture that teaches us a very important spiritual truth. And the, the, the lesson is just so simple. If, if I were to try to have a relationship with God based on my goodness, I would be judged, I would be condemned, I would be like Israel, exiled out of God's presence, 
And that means that our only hope for eternal life in heaven is God's grace. It's God's grace. That, that's it. So the law was given to teach this lesson so that we could read the Old Testament. And Paul says that in Corinthians, doesn't he? These things were written down for our instruction. We see God's law and we see the, these people who never are able to keep God's law and, ble- and, and secure his blessing. That was written down for your instruction so that you would know I can never be right with God based on keeping his law. This is primarily or, or precisely what Paul said was the primary purpose of the law. In Galatians 3.19, li- listen to this. Galatians 3.19, told you we're looking at a lot of scripture this morning. Uh, it says this, why, why then the law? If everything was based on this promise of Abraham and this need for mercy and God's grace, why was the law given? He says here it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise? Is this another way? Did did God make a promise and then he said, here's this other way that you could be my people is by keeping my my law? Is there some kind of tension between the promise to Abraham and the, the, the law of Moses? He says, certainly not. No way. God forbid. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If God had given us a law that we could keep and and we could secure life based on keeping that law, then that would be the way of salvation. But listen to verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. There's that ministry of condemnation again. Everything is under sin. It imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus may be given to those who? Who who is going to get the promise? To those who believe. Not to those who keep God's law. Not to those who obey. Everything's been imprisoned under sin so that you would see the only way of salvation is by believing in Christ and trusting in him. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned because we were guilty. We were, we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now listen to this, this verse now, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we would be justified by faith. We would be justified by faith. God would declare us righteous, not by saying, hey, here's here's my law. Okay, check, check, check. You got all 10. You are justified. No, you're guilty. You've broken every single commandment, right? Every last one of them. And, And the only way to be justified then is on the basis of believing and trusting in Christ. Now, this historical object lesson is spelled out in the New Testament in in great detail. We're just going to draw a few passages and and look at this in in a little more detail here. So now what we want to see is that the law brings condemnation because it exposes our sinfulness. So we're transitioning from this Old Testament picture to see Paul just spell this out in the New Testament, exactly what we've been looking at. Why does the law have a ministry of condemnation? Why are we not able to keep the law? What's the problem? Well, let's look at this. The the law, first of all, brings condemnation because it exposes our sinfulness. So look at Romans chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter for the sake of time. We won't do that right now. But look at these particular verses here, Romans 3, 19 and 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law says 
It speaks to those who are under the law. And just listen to this. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's take that backwards here. Look at verse 20. No human being will be justified by keeping God's law. You are not going to get to heaven because you were good. No way. No person is going to be justified in that manner, it says. Why not? Because it tells us what does the law do? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, when I look at the law of God and and I begin to measure myself up, I don't prove how good of a person I am. I actually prove how big of a sinner I am. So when I look at the law, I come to a knowledge of my sin. The the law defines what sin is, and then it exposes my sinfulness so that I could never be justified based on my own righteousness because the law reveals my sin to me. And what's the result of that then? Going backwards in this passage, the result is this. Every mouth is stopped. There's nobody saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm right with God because of what I've done and I I, I do this and I help in my community and I'm a good father and and I really don't lie too much and all of these things. Every mouth is going to be stopped before God and the whole world is held accountable. And, And we could say again, this ministry of condemnation, the whole world is condemned by God's law. So you'll never be justified because the law actually exposes our sinfulness. Secondly, the law brings condemnation because it requires perfect obedience. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, that's really strict. You know, I I know God wants us to be good. And and I know I'm not perfect. I would never say I'm perfect, right? But but I actually do pretty good. I mean, maybe if you compare me to other people or or, or so forth, I really try to do what God wants me to do. And so I'm not maybe as bad as you're making it sound this morning. But, but what we need to understand is that God's law demands perfect obedience. It, it isn't as if we can keep most of the law, but we break these and we're still slide by. We're, God's going to kind of grade us on a curve. And, you know, as long as you get over that 50% mark with humanity, you're going to be okay. No, no, none of that. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You can't just keep some. Partial credit will not be accepted. Well, Lord, I did like 70%. That's pretty good. Well, we'll see. First of all, you probably are not quite as good as you think you are to begin with. But even if you kept 99%, if you don't keep all of the law of God, if, if that's what you're basing your relationship on, this says you are under a curse. James says the same thing. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James says that, James 2.10 and 11, For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If I do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? How many laws do you have to break of God's law in order to be guilty of being a lawbreaker? Only one. You've done a lot more than that, and so have I. Uh, But you only have to break one. God demands 
perfection. And something else that we need to understand, and we're going to deal with this more later, but, but even our, our obedience, it, it can't be sort of fake obedience or halfway obedience. Jesus taught that, right? Our, our obedience can't be merely externalistic or legalistic. The Pharisees were really good at both of these. Externalism is, is this idea. Externalism is when I conform outwardly even while my heart remains in rebellion. So I do it on the outside, but, but inside I'm not delighting in this. It's not something that I really want to do. Jesus gives two examples of, of this externalism. And I, I mentioned the, the Pharisees who were so guilty of this, and all of us are, are like Pharisees. Uh, when, we, when we come to really think about it, Matthew 5.21 says this, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to everyone who, uh, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he goes on to that, but you see how he shifts it from, from external to internal, right? Oh, you haven't committed murder. Great. You haven't actually shot someone or taken a knife and stabbed them to death. Wonderful. But what about the hatred and the anger in your heart that you have toward people? Jesus is saying, that's where you need to be thinking about. Because obedience to my law isn't just about external conformity. We can all be pretty good at sort of looking good on the outside. But Jesus and God, we know, looks at the heart of man. This is part of the reason why Jesus condemned uh, the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 23, verse 27 through 28, Matthew 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28 says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness there's that word lawlessness again on the inside you look good pharisees in fact you've got people fooled into thinking you are those the most righteous people ever to live that that you like never make a mistake you are so precise about kind of keeping these external ritualistic kinds of things but inside you are full of rebellion you you will not submit to god in your heart that's externalism and there's legalism as well legalism uh, means sort of obeying the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law it's like it's how our children do right they they find creative uh sort of really unbelievable ways to do what we say sort of uh by the letter of the law but kind of get around it and do what they want to do anyway that that's that's what legalism is in that sense uh, I use all of my power of imagination and creativity to figure out how I can technically obey God's law, even while I continue to really just do whatever I want to do. That's legalism in, in that sense. And Jesus condemned the Pharisees for this as well. Uh, they had an elaborate system of oath taking. So one of the commandments is don't bear false witness. Tell the truth. Don't lie. But, but the Pharisees came up with this elaborate system of taking oaths, and some oaths were really binding, and other oaths were just not quite as binding. And you remember what Jesus said to, to them, Matthew 23, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. You can lie. You can get away from your oaths if you, if you just swear by the temple. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred and he goes on to condemn them but but do you see that sort of legalistic tendency 
well, we can obey. We, we can kind of come up with this system that allows us to disobey God even while uh, it seems like we're obeying God. That's legalism. And so when we think about our, our obedience, our so-called obedience, just on those two principles alone, so much of it would be washed away. How much of what we do is just based on wanting to look good to other people? How often do we kind of twist God's law to be able to do what we want to do, uh, all, all the while it kind of appears that we're doing what God wants us to do? Now, there's more that we could say to examine and sort of put our righteousness or our obedience under the microscope of God's law, but those two would be sufficient nearly to wipe out anything that we would claim as being righteous. And so the law condemns us then because it demands perfect obedience to God. Thirdly, the law brings condemnation because it exposes our inability. Romans chapter 7 makes this case and what what we see in Romans 7 is that the the real problem is ourselves the problem isn't God's law the the problem is that we have a sinful flesh or or a sinful nature that really makes us unable this morning you and I are unable totally unable to obey God's commands and to keep his keep his law listen to what Paul says Romans chapter 7 did that which is good then bring death to me? I, I wish we could just go through the whole chapter 7 of, of Romans, uh, but, but our series would, would uh, become very long uh, if we did that. Romans 7, though, says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Was, was it the law's fault? Is, is the problem the law? He says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. God's law is good. It's not the problem. The sin that resides within my heart is, is the problem. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Again, there's that, there's that use of the law of bringing condemnation. It has a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. And, and so in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, and you this morning are of the flesh, sold under sin. We're under the power and dominion of sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. This is the conflicting thing, as you say. Okay, here's God's law. Here's God's standard. Yes, I want to be obedient to God. Yes, I want to do what God tells me to do. And so that's what I'm going to do. But the very thing I want to do is not what I want to do. I end up doing the thing that I don't want to do. I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. That is, the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see, there's sin within you. You have a sinful flesh, a sin nature that, that propels you, that inclines you toward sinfulness, away from God. You have a sinful, depraved nature. And, and so even as you could say, uh, even on your best day, you say, yeah, I want to be obedient to God. What you're going to find is your own sin nature is going to pull you away from that. He says, for I know that Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In, in this fallen, sinful, corrupted nature that I have, 
nothing good dwells in me. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not, I do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We're going to see moving forward that, that it's Christ. Christ is our only hope. E- even on my best day when I want to obey God's law, and I want to do what, what I know I ought to do, what I know and agree about God's law, that's good. I find myself inclined towards sin and drawn away from the Lord. I need to be delivered. I, I need salvation. And so the law brings condemnation because it exposes that we're totally incapable, totally unable to obey God's law. Finally, this morning, the law brings condemnation because it it demands justice. The law brings condemnation because it demands justice. You see, God is a just judge, and he has pronounced condemnation on all lawbreakers. God God is not a judge that's going to look at someone who is guilty and say, you know, I'm going to let you off just because I'm feeling nice, right? We, we almost sometimes have like, well, that might be nice if a judge would do that. Yeah, it would be nice that a judge would do that until you're the aggrieved party, right? Until you're the one that has, you know, had your family member murdered or your property stolen, and then you want justice, right? They better get this guy. They better hold him to account, right? That's, that's the way that, that we think. Right, and, and that's because we have an inner sense and an inner desire for justice to, to be meted out. And listen, God is a just judge. He's righteous and holy. He will not acquit people who are guilty. He will not just sweep your sin under the rug and say, oh, okay, you're, you're good, go ahead. I'm just going to overlook that. No, he brings sin to justice and he will judge all lawbreakers. This is what it says in Exodus 34, verses 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and, the, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the, So there we see, oh, yes, God is gracious. And that is true. God is merciful. Yes, that's wonderful. But listen to what he says immediately follow that but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God will not clear the guilty. He will not look at you in your sinfulness apart from Christ and say, yeah, you broke my law, but go ahead and come into heaven. Come into my presence. Go ahead and be my people without remedying that problem. The law brings condemnation then because it demands justice. Well, what is our hope then? We're going to be taking a turn here now in in this series. As we move forward, we're going to be pointing more to Christ and seeing what Christ does for us uh, in terms of our law. And that's exactly what we've been saying, right? This truth, what I've just laid out for you, is why we must receive the law in the hands of Christ. Because if we take up the law and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's do a series on the Ten Commandments and let's all try really hard to obey God so we can go to heaven. If we do that, the law is going to bring condemnation 
to you and not life. You will not merit God's blessing. You will not earn salvation by trying to be a good person. The law must come to you in the hands of Christ. The the law was given by God for that very purpose to to point you to and to, to direct you and to prepare your heart to receive Christ. That's what Paul says, that, that the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. It leads us to Christ. It teaches us our sinfulness. And we say, my only hope is a savior. My only hope is that God would be merciful in some way. And God says, yes, and now here's my son. This is the way of salvation, not through your good deeds. As we close this morning, look, and I don't have this one on the screen, but if you have your Bible, turn to John 3.16. And this is the way of salvation. This, this is why we need Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we have, eter- how do we have life? The law says do this and live, but we, don't, we can't live by our keeping God's law. But this says that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Life comes to us through Jesus Christ, through believing in him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That was the, that was the role of the law, to bring condemnation to the world, the, the, the ministry of condemnation. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise the Lord this morning. When you look at yourself and you evaluate yourself by the law of God, you're going to see I'm condemned. But when you believe in Jesus Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. You're set free from the condemnation of the law. Next week, we will begin to focus in on that even more as we think about our approach to the law. But this morning as we close, let me just invite you, if you've never believed and trusted in Christ, do it this morning. If you have, for, for throughout your life, have had a mindset that you would be saved and that you would go to heaven because you're a good person or you try to be obedient to God's law, that will never happen. It will only bring condemnation upon you. But if you will believe in Jesus Christ this morning, you will be saved. You will be given life. Believe in him today. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we're so grateful for Christ. We're we're thankful for your law, which is good and it's righteous and it's holy and it's true. But Lord, we know that we are sold under sin and that in us dwells no good thing. When we compare ourselves to the law and we begin to try to keep it, we see just how sinful we really are. God, we need Christ. We confess this morning that he's our only hope, that the only foundation that we have for a relationship with you, the only hope of eternal life is in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, if there's someone here who has never believed in him, who has never placed their faith in him, someone who's trying to be religious or be a good person in order to get to heaven, God, would you grant them faith to believe in Christ this morning? that they would no longer be condemned. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.